We're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning. We're going to start in uh, Exodus 7, but it'll be a few minutes before we get there. Finishing up the plagues, this, well, sort of finishing up, finishing up plagues through 9 this morning. Uh, going back and taking one more good look at these plagues. and uh, We've been highlighting a few different things. Going to highlight one more thing today uh, that will kind of set the tone for us, I believe. A couple weeks ago, I was, uh, I was beginning the long drive home from vacation. You guys know how that feels. The, the vacation is over. Everyone's exhausted and worn out and headed off to La La Land, and Dad is driving. That's the way that that, that works. That is part of... That is part of, <laughs> that, that's part, well, that's part of dad life in, in my house anyway. And uh, we were in Orlando. We were heading out of town, and within 10 minutes, my whole crew was, was gone. Emily was, was out. And uh, we're driving through Orlando, and I passed by a, a billboard that got my attention. This billboard was up. It says, God is not angry. And church is Grace Orlando. Very simple billboard, but it's right in a position where you can't miss it. It's a a good little little buy for them where they're at because you can see it clearly. You can't really drive by and miss it. And that just set all kinds of things in motion for me for the rest of my trip as I was driving back. That, that little billboard just kind of uh, had my mind going, just kind of set me off in that direction. I have no idea what I did, where we drove for the next hour. I have, no, I, don't, I have no recollection of that because I was just thinking about uh, this billboard and, and all that was uh, kind of kind of pent up within that simple little sign that is there. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to argue with it. I wanted to talk about how misguided it was. I wanted to affirm some of what they were trying to get across in some ways. I wanted to know more about the church. You know, I was trying to figure out, do I, do I Google this church while I'm driving? Probably not a good idea, but I really want to know more about them. Is this just kind of a Joel Osteen South thing type thing in Florida? And, and I can just dismiss what they say pretty quickly? Or, or who are they? I've since gone and kind of researched the church just a little bit. They don't seem to be too off on a lot of things. I would probably quibble, quibble with a few things that they have, but they, aren't, they don't seem to be terrible from what you can figure out on a, on a website. Take that for what it is. But it got me thinking further. Let's just assume that this church isn't terrible in its theology and not readily dismissed. Maybe even if they were, what's the impulse for a church to spend the kind of money that's required to purchase a billboard like that in Orlando? I promise you that was not cheap. What makes them do this type of thing right in a busy section of town, right off the interstate, that is so decidedly singular in its message? Of all the things that they could, they could put on that billboard, why is this the one thing that they put up there? What's so important about this message that they get it across like this. So in your own hearts, what do you think? Do you think God is angry? If so, what's he angry at? If not, why not? Why do you think that so many people see him as angry? Ask yourself those questions as we go through one more time looking at these plagues and kind of consider what is happening in those plagues. Remember, you know, it does say in the Bible that God is love, and if God is love, how can God be angry? Maybe this billboard is spot on in some things. Anger is the opposite of love, right? At least that's what we assume, that's what we look at. Those two can't coexist together. Where there is anger, there is no love. At least that's what we're told so often by our culture. So 
So think about that just a little bit, and I'm going to come back to this all the way at the end of the sermon, so I'm getting a bit ahead of myself as I talk about some of this stuff. But the bigger issue, the bigger thing that I want to consider this morning, whether you think the billboard is right or not, or even if it matters if it's right. I mean, that may be some of your impulses. What does it matter if we get this right or not? What does it matter if it's right or if it's wrong? Isn't this just one of those silly theological debates that, 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 that theologians get into and that people that think they're really smart get into, but really has no practical bearing on our everyday life? It doesn't matter what's going to happen to me on Tuesday at work, whether this billboard is right or not. All I really want us to focus on is what drives the impulse for this, and is what drives the impulse a good thing. So this morning we're back in Exodus, and we've been taking a long look at the plagues for the last few weeks. We've already looked at a handful of different things about these plagues. We've made a few different observations. We saw initially that these plagues were intended to wreck the worldview of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. We saw that these these plagues were were set up to show them that the, the pantheon of gods that the Egyptians worship don't hold a candle to Yahweh. Pharaoh asked the question, who is this Yahweh that I should obey him? You guys remember this is what we've been focusing on over and over and over again. Who is this Yahweh that I should obey him? And then Yahweh has so far been happy to answer him. Pharaoh was happy to add another God to his collection, but Yahweh was not interested in that. That was not on the table for Pharaoh. That was not an option for Pharaoh. He didn't get to just add Yahweh into the table of God's. God wanted to show that he was supreme over all the other gods of Egypt. That Yahweh wasn't a god, he was the god. This led us to what we looked at last week, that the the whole of the plagues, and as they progressed and how Pharaoh dealt with it. We looked at how Pharaoh tried his best to, to negotiate with God and try to negotiate from a position of strength to say, no, 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 I'll give you this, you'll take what I give you, and And God is not interested in the deals that Pharaoh offers. He wanted to give these out to be able to say, hey, here's what you can do, and here's what I'll allow you to do to show that I'm still in control. But what we saw is that God never budges. Pharaoh never gets God to come off the initial offer. In fact, what we'll see next week is that God only ups the demand as we continue to go through the plagues. So that leaves us here today. One last look at what's going on in these plagues before we get to Passover. And we're going to have to answer that question that the first two sermons leave us with. Maybe you're not asking that question, but if you, if you sit back and you think about what, what God says over these first few plagues, it leaves us with a question to what we've looked at the last few weeks. Week one, we saw God demands to be held in the highest regard, not as a God, but the God. Week two, God refuses to negotiate with Pharaoh. Why? Not because God has demands that that absolutely have to be met, but because God wants to show that he is the one that's in charge and in control. He wants to dictate terms, and he wants to show that to Pharaoh. God wanted to make it clear to Pharaoh he was no longer in charge. 
And who does that kind of thing anyway? Who insists on negotiating and saying, no, the terms don't change? If you go to buy a house, say you want to buy a house for uh, $180,000, or you, you're trying to sell a house for $180,000, someone offers you $175,000, and you say, no, the price is $180,000, I'm not coming off of that. Well, that's fine. You have that right. That's part of negotiating. Go ahead and do that. But if they come back and they say, all right, we'll offer 179 and you say, no, it's going to be 180 I'm not coming off of that price. And then they come back and say, okay, fine, 180 But can you just leave the fridge? We don't have a fridge. We just leave the fridge. That's going to be part of the negotiation. We just want you to leave the fridge for us. And then you come back and you say, no, you can buy the fridge if you'd like. That will make the purchase price $181. i am not going to give you anything. And if they come back and they say, well, we just really love the welcome mat up front. We think it's a great little welcome mat. Can you please just leave the welcome mat? We'll pay the 181 Just leave the welcome mat. And then you come back and say, it'll be 181 020. That's what it's going to be because you're going to need to buy the welcome mat too because I'm not throwing anything in. Jimmy, you ever had any negotiations go about like that for, for real estate stuff? Not quite. So the reason why is because the, the guy who demands this is exactly how it's got to be comes across as a total jerk. He comes across as somebody that nobody wants to do business with. Nobody wants to represent that guy as a real estate agent. Nobody wants to do that kind of thing because you you need to negotiate. You need to give a little bit. But this is exactly what God does with Pharaoh. He says, no, no, no. I'm not coming off of anything here. I'm not going to do it. This is how God negotiates with Pharaoh. And then the, 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 the next week, whenever we saw that, the, or the, the week before that, whenever we saw that, that, that God doesn't say, I'll be a, one of your gods that you worship, I'll be the God that you worship, certainly we wouldn't, we wouldn't want someone that'll say things like, no, 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 you don't get to worship any other gods. God is the only God. Our culture t- tells us that, that is bigoted, that is narrow-minded, that is, that is wrong, that is cruel, that is that is mean, that is intolerant. You can't do that. And yet this is exactly what God does to the Egyptian people. So what makes it okay for God to negotiate like this? Whenever somebody did that with us, we would think they were a jerk. What makes it okay for God to be intolerant? What makes it okay for God to do this? Because we can't get away with it without looking like arrogant, pompous idiots. So how can God get away with that? Does that seem fair? Does that seem right? We're going to try to answer that today as we go through this. For now, I want to zero in on some important language in the, in the plagues that will kind of help move us toward this answer and, and answer the question, why is it okay for God to exalt himself and for God to be so uncompromising when he does it? So, plague one, chapter seven. Plague 1, chapter 7, from the very beginning, God is laying out what the plagues are going to look like, and he's, he's talking about how the plagues are going to go, and he tells Moses and Aaron, he says, go and do this. Do what I want you to do. This is chapter 7, verse 17. And this is what God says. This is what Yahweh says. Here is how you will know that I am Yahweh. Watch. I will strike the water in the Nile with, my, with the staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. So do you notice what he says there? Here's how you will know 
that I am Yahweh. Here's how you will know that I am God. Plague two, you scoot up a little bit. The, 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 the frogs come. The frogs are everywhere. And then and Pharaoh says, no, you've got to relent. You've got to take these frogs away. I can't take it. They're driving me crazy. And then this is what Moses replies in chapter 8, verse 10. Moses replied, as you have said, so you may know that there is no one like Yahweh, our God. The frogs will go away from you your houses, your officials, and your people. The frogs will remain only in the Nile. So there, first two plagues, right at the very beginning, what what Moses makes clear, what Moses communicates is, this is about to happen. This thing is about to happen. Why? So that you will know who God is. You will know who Yahweh is. The plague will come the first time. The plague will relent the second time. Why? So you will know who Yahweh is. By plague three, the magicians can't replicate what's happening with the, uh, with the, the, the gnats. They can't figure out what's going on with that. And the magicians acknowledge in, in chapter 8, verse 19, that this is the finger of God that is making this happen. So they're starting to have their eyes opened just a little bit. They're starting to see that this is actually something bigger than them and bigger than even the gods that they deal with and they try to manipulate. You fast forward a little bit to plague seven, and this is really going to be kind of the, the crux. We'll look at a few more, but this is going to be kind of the central verse that will guide our time here this morning. Chapter nine, verse 13, and the seventh plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, this is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they may worship me. Otherwise, I'm going to send all my plagues against you, your officials, and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me in all the earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known in all the earth. God just tells you why the plagues happen right there. It's not punishment, primarily. It's not just to inflict pain. It's not just those things. It is primarily to make his name known in all the earth. You see, if God wanted to show you how powerful he was, all he would have to do is wipe them out, and they would be gone. This is it. This is all it would take. You guys been watching any of the Marvel stuff? You know, Thanos, he gets to to eliminate half the people with a snap of his finger, right? And that's supposed to show how powerful he is. That's supposed to show how that works. God is saying, I could have wiped everyone out if I wanted to because I'm completely sovereign over it all. This is what he says. But I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known in all the earth. You keep going to plague 8, the next plague, chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. 
So why does this continue to happen? Why has Pharaoh's heart been hardened by God? So that God can continue to do the miraculous signs among them. And in verse 2, And so that you may tell your son and your grandson how severely I have dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them. And then you will know that I am Yahweh. You're seeing a trend here. You're seeing a pattern of what works in these plagues and what comes up. Plague 10 that we'll look at next week in the Passover. Chapter 10, it's in in verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not let the Israelites go out of his land. So time and time and time again, we're told in these plagues why the plagues are happening. Why are they happening? So that Egypt, so that Israel, so that Pharaoh, so that Moses will know who Yahweh is and will know how powerful he is. And then when you know those things, that will begin to change something about you over and over and over again. Moses tells us that God is doing this so that the people will know who he is. That's the heart of these plagues. It's about God helping people to know who he is. To reveal himself to them. There was no scripture for them to be able to turn to. There was no Bible that could be put in their hands to say, go there and learn about who Yahweh is. This is how God is revealing himself. By asserting his dominance and his sovereignty over the most powerful man in the world and a civilization that was supposed to be unbeatable. But it's not just that we would know him. That is certainly a big part of it. But it's that in coming to know him, we would then glorify him. That our knowing of him would then turn things so that we would then glorify God. That is the heart behind the plagues. It's not just so that he would be known. It's so that he would be known. And because you find out who he truly is, you then glorify That's why he acts, and that's why he wants us to know him. I quote A.W. Tozer all the time. If you've been here at all, you know this quote. What we think when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's it's my philosophy of preaching and teaching. What we think when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the reason this is true is because when we truly know God, when we know him rightly, which is what he's trying to disclose through these plagues, when we know him rightly and then we give him what is due him, he will be glorified. And the glory of God is the goal of God. But again, we have to ask this question. Why does he get to act that way? Why does God get to demand glory in that way? We can't do that. If you did that, everyone would think you are a pompous idiot. I still remember the first time I was ever grounded. Primarily because my my parents didn't really deal in groundings. They dealt in whoopings. So I can still remember when I got grounded for the first time. I remember it was about six years old. 
and uh, six, seven years old, and I knew I had done something different and something to a different degree than what, than what a spanking would have been warranted, even though I would take the grounding over the spanking. It, I, I knew that in my dad's eyes, this was a more severe punishment, the way that he levied it against me. I was grounded for two days from, I don't know, G.I. Joe's or something. I don't know what it was, but I got grounded, and I knew that this was... Uh, I knew this was a, a big deal. And what had happened is that a handful of guys on my t-ball team were selected for our league's all-star team. I was one of the ones that made it. Now that I'm older, I know that my dad was willing to coach the team, so that probably helped me out just a little bit to make sure I got on the team. I know how those things work now. But I was super excited at the time. I thought, this is awesome. I made the all-star team. This is great. I was proud of myself. I was very excited. And so I went running to tell one of my friends, hey, guess what? They just said I made the all-star team. Unfortunately, tact is not something that exists in a seven-year-old. So uh, the friend I was talking to was not one that made the team. And uh, I don't know that it hurt his feelings or didn't hurt his feelings. He seemed genuinely happy for me. We were all jumping up and down and celebrating. It was fun. Uh, but my dad made sure that was not going to happen again. Immediately called me out with that kind of like, oh no, what have I done type of thing. Like, call me out. I was pulled to the side. And from my parents' perspective, I was a glory hound. And they were not about to let one of their kids act like that. And so they came down with a hammer. They grounded me there. I was devastated. I cried the whole way home, primarily because I had no idea what I, was, what I had done. My parents were like, you're grounded because you were bragging. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Can I do that if I don't even know what that means? I, I, I don't even know. Like, what, what are you talking about? Followed this up by much wailing from me and, uh, and my parents not budging, by the way. I still served out this full grounding from whatever I was grounded from, but they taught me about bragging and boasting and arrogance and cockiness. I learned all those words that day. The message was received. You don't act that way. That's not how good people act. That's how bad people act. You don't do that. And yet here is God rubbing Pharaoh's nose in it and saying, glorify me, give me glory. And it's not just here. It's all over Scripture. I could literally give you dozens and dozens of references here. I'll give you two, some of the two, two that stand out. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9. Listen to how many times God drives this one home. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9. He says, I will delay my anger for the honor of my name, and I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise so that you will not be destroyed. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And I will act for my own sake. Indeed, my own. For how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. I mean, this is verse after verse, clause after clause, just a death blow. Every one of these, he's talking about the suffering that we go through. And you would think that what he would say is, look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction so that you would become as pure as gold and you would be refined and you would be a wonderful person. But that's not what he says. He says, I've put you through this for my own glory. Well, gee, thanks. Like, what gives God the right to do that? Arrogance in the highest degree, is it not? 
So were my parents wrong? If we're supposed to be like God, aren't we supposed to emulate Him? Shouldn't we be striving for attention and glory to exalt ourselves in the way that God does? Why is it sin when we do it, but not when God does it? Let me give you another one. Perhaps the most clear and controversial one of these in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. Ties back to our text today. For he tells Moses... I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he shows mercy to those he wants to, and he hardens those he wants to harden. Paul goes on, you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Well, what does form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery, one for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, desiring to display his wrath, uh uh-oh, And to make his power known, endured with much patience, objects of wrath ready for destruction. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? Man, what a passage. You want to talk about stepping on toes? That'll step on toes. And why does he do all of this? To make known the riches of his glory. So that you know how glorious he is. That's why he's done it. So why does God get to do these things? Why does he get to say, I won't share my glory with another. I'm not going to defer to someone. God is not a self-deprecating God. The difference in the two for us is that for me to exalt myself is for me to try to put myself in a place that is reserved for God alone. It is right for God to put, him place, to put himself in a place that is reserved for him. That is correct. That is right. That is the right thing to do. It is wrong for me to assert my place there. I don't get to claim that because it is God's rightful place. And this is what he is showing Pharaoh in the plagues. He's saying, you can't claim to be God. And why can't you claim to be God? Because I am. And you need to know that that's who I am because if you know that's who I am, you will then be able to glorify me rightly. So it's right for God to exalt his glory and it's only right for him to exalt his glory because he's the only one that's worthy of that glory. He's the only one that deserves that glory. He's the only one that gets to sit in that place of glory. For God to do that is the most loving and holy thing he can do because he is the one that belongs there. We got all kinds of teachers in here, right? It's wrong for the teacher to reward and acknowledge an incorrect answer to a problem, right? You don't give a good score for a wrong answer. But it's right, it's it's good, it's right for you to give correct honor to the correct answer if you want to continue the analogy. It's wrong for God to give us good marks when our answer is incorrect. 
So God does all he does for his glory, and it is right for him to do so. And it is right for us to do so. So let's go back to the sign that we started our morning off this morning. What compels the church to put a sign up like that, that God is not angry? They do this, I'm convinced, because they believe that God's anger is a characteristic that should be avoided and should not be talked about because anger has such harsh connotations that come with it. When we see anger, when we hear anger, when we watch anger, that doesn't come across as something that is dignified that a a God that deserves glory would have. And so instead of trying to, to redefine things, they just dismiss it and say, no, God's not like that anymore. Maybe he was like that, but he's not like that anymore. The impulse is to hide or redefine a part of God that we wish wasn't there because we think that makes him look bad. So they just declare, well, he isn't. He's not angry. The problem here is that if God isn't angry, you and I have nothing to worry about. There's literally no reason for you to be here. There's no reason for you to repent. There's no reason for you to even glorify him because he is just there. He's just another thing. But if you get that wrong, and he really is angry, well, then we have a problem. And then we have something we have to really sort through here. In our text today, Pharaoh has no reason to fear what Yahweh might do if he's not angry. If he's not angry, if we're all just buddy-buddy, sinners have nothing to fear and God is not angry. But what we as Christians have to affirm is that our faith falls apart if we cannot affirm that God is on some level angry. Now this does not mean that he is a off the, uh, flying off the cuff, lose your temper type of person. That's not what we mean whenever we say God is angry. What we mean is that he is righteous in his anger. He is right to be angry. He is right to mark the test as incorrect because we've all given the wrong answer. Instinctively, we know this to be true. Because if God's not angry, then either he's inconsistent or he's not what he claims to be. You see, this church, the one with the billboard, I'm certain would gladly proclaim that God is love. They should. That's right. But in doing so, they feel that they have to minimize, redefine, or eliminate his anger in order to highlight his love. What Scripture teaches us is that God's wrath, God's goodness, God's justice, all of those things coexist together with his love. Not at the expense of one another, not to maximize one another and minimize the other. He is one unified in them all, and they are all right to exist Together, and we instinctively know that this is true. God's anger can't just be gone. If so, his love would be too. Now, follow me here. You see, God's anger and his justice are a part of what it means for him to love. If you love something, then you know that there's emotion tied to that thing that you love, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. I love my wife and kids. If someone were to harm them, you better believe I'm going to be angry. 
And if there were no anger to accompany that, then you would rightfully be able to question the depth of my love for them. Do you see how that works together? How those two things work together? Those things are there together. I'm not going to be some emotionless stoic. I'm going to be angry and rightfully so. So it is with God. If He weren't angry, if He didn't look at us as rebels to Him that were taking, that was taking from, let me say it, let me say it better. I almost said that wrong. If He weren't angry, if He didn't look at our disobedience as something that harms us and as something that is against Him, then He wouldn't be loving. He would not be seeking out our good. The two things work together. But here's the thing about how love works for God. This is not an emotion-laden, yes, it is emotional, but it is not an emotion-laden, desperate neediness. That is not what it means that God loves us. That's not what it means. In our culture today, that's what love is. Emotion-laden, desperate neediness to say, I've got to have you, that means that I love you. I want to use this analogy from D.A. Carson that will kind of close out our time this morning. D.A. Carson's an author, theologian, and uh, he, he gives this analogy. And I, I kind of paraphrase it a little bit here, but I want you to follow along with me to understand a little bit about how God works and how God loves us and how that love then leads to his glory. Let's say Mike and Sandy are in a relationship, right? They're married, they're dating, whatever, they're in a relationship. Mike looks over at Sandy and says, Sandy, I deeply, deeply love you. What does he mean when he says this? In your mind, what what do you ascribe to those words that he, he gives? He probably means something like this. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he legitimately means what he's saying. And he says, he's saying, Sandy, you have my heart. You've captivated, captivated me since we met. Your eyes are like, like, like stars. Your smile, it just lights up the room. You're such a wonderful person. I couldn't be more filled with joy than when I am with you. That's what he means, right? When he says, I love you. But I can tell you one thing he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean this. Sandy, your breath smells like you're trying to ward off vampires with a pound of garlic. Your nose is the size of a skyscraper in New York, and your hair is greased, greased enough to where you could, you could work an 18-wheeler with it. Your legs are as uncoordinated and gangly as a newborn giraffe, and your personality is arrogant enough to make the Kardashians look humble. <laughs> That's not what he means, right? That's not what he's saying. So what does it mean then to, to ascribe these words to God when God says, I love you? Does he mean, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. Is that what God means when he says that he loves us? For many, and I would venture to guess probably the church that put that billboard up, that's what they mean. God is transfixed on us. He desperately wants us. He has an emotional neediness for us. He's, he, is, he is latched on to us. That is a pretty close representative 
to what the love of God looks like to much of our culture. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us. But reality is, God comes to us, and when he says he loves us, this is really more what it sounds like. Morally speaking, you are the people of bad breath. Skyscraper noses, greaseball hair, uncoordinated, ungraceful, and full of arrogance that would rival the entirety of the Oscars. But I love you anyway. Not because you are attractive, but because it is in my nature to love you. And in the case of those that he has chosen and are elect, God says, I have set my affection on you from the foundation of the universe, not because you are wiser or better or stronger than others, but because in grace I chose to love you. You are mine, and you will be transformed. Nothing in all creation can separate you from my love in Christ Jesus. That is why it doesn't help for us to say God is not angry because he's right to be angry at the things that, that rob, of his, rob him of the glory that is due him here on earth. I want to be clear when I say this. God's glory never diminishes because someone doesn't praise him. His glory remains at all times. Not one of us could praise him in this room and his glory would not diminish because we don't praise him. It's our recognition of that glory that is lost. And so when God says he loves us, it's not because we are great, it's because he is great. It's because he is glorious. And when God sets his affections on us, that gives him glory and it enables us to rightly see ourselves and to say, God, you are glorious, not because you have come to me because I am beautiful or I am worthy of love, but because you have chosen to do so. That is what it means when we say God loves us. Let's revisit Pharaoh and his hard heart here for just a second. The question everyone goes to is, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why would God do that? We looked at this just a few weeks ago. You can go back and listen to that message. That question is born in a misunderstanding of our condition before God and apart from God. When you consider our hard hearts and our rebellion to God, that we are enemies to God, the real question isn't why did God harden Pharaoh's heart. The truly perplexing thing so far in the book of Exodus, is why did God soften Moses? Moses was no more worthy of hardening or softening than Pharaoh. The reality is that God's hardening and God's grace are unconditional upon the deeds of us. They are fully within him. They are fully within his sovereign grace and his prerogative. We are perplexed by God's wrath, judgment, and hardening, but we should be far more amazed by his graciousness, his patience, and his kindness. We are due the wrath and judgment. We are not due the grace and the love. Neither Pharaoh nor Moses. So as we wrap up these plagues and we look at the glory of God and what he has put on display, why these plagues exist to glorify him, I simply want us to be able to acknowledge that God is acting in these plagues and God is acting as we go forward throughout the Old Testament, as we see the Red Sea split here in a few weeks and as we see the Ten Commandments given and the law that is given, as we go throughout the prophets and we see the the establishment of the, the nation of Israel and King David and then as we move to the New Testament, This story that God is weaving together, that God is telling, is 
always, primarily, first and foremost, about his glory. It's not just the plagues. It's the whole story. And then as we, as we head into Easter, and we start to consider the way that Jesus marched to the cross, as we consider the fact that even Jesus would walk among us, as we consider the events of Good Friday, that Jesus was, was crucified, he was murdered, we can see that just as the plagues happen the way they did, so the story of Easter happens the way it does. Not because we are worthy of the sacrifice, but because God is glorious. Because God looks at us and says, I love you. Because I'm glorious. And that's the right thing for him to say. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we confess that far too often we are glory hounds. We love ourselves. We love to talk about ourselves. We love to think about ourselves. We love to feel sorry for ourselves. We love to demand things that aren't rightfully ours. We love to pretend that we are better than we are. And we are certainly better than others. Father, we are glory thieves. But your word is clear that you say you will not share your glory with another. And your anger towards us when we rob that glory is right. And so, Father, we, we come to the cross because we desperately need forgiveness for that. Our pride has robbed us of the very thing we were created to do, the ability to give you praise. And so, Father, we ask that you would rob us of our pride. Make us humble. Give us your righteousness that we may truly be able to praise you rightly. We would see you for who you are. We would know you for your goodness, for your power, for your sovereignty. And we would be able to glorify you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.